We are sensory creatures. We know through our senses. This is called mm-hmm. somatic knowledge, knowledge of our senses. Theology begins with the senses in many in many ways. Uh, and Christian theology particularly, because Christian theology begins with the person of Christ. Incarnation, the word becoming flesh. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Joel Clarkson is a composer, an audiobook narrator, a songwriter, and an author. His new book is Sensing God, Experiencing the Divine in Nature, Food, Music, and Beauty. Joel makes the case in this book that the spiritual life isn't just spiritual. We experience God through our senses. That truth seems especially relevant to writers who are forever trying to give abstract truths a local habitation and a name. So I got in touch with Joel to ask him about it. Joel Clarkson, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast this morning. It's great to be here. I say this morning, it's morning for me. It's not morning for you because you're in Oxford, England, locked down with your family. That is correct. Uh, We kind of gathered from the four winds and uh, came here for Christmas. And as folks in the UK and maybe some beyond will know, uh, there was a a sudden scare with with various things here in the UK right after Christmas, Boxing Day, as it's called over here on December 26th. And uh, we had a very sudden uh, lockdown, which has now kept us happily cocooned in our little spaces here. <laughs> well, I'm glad you were with your people uh, yeah, locked down, at least. Yeah. So uh, when this episode releases, it, uh, this episode is released the same week as your new book is releasing, Sensing God. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that book. Right? Where does it come from? What are the, what are the big ideas that, that drive this book? Absolutely. So... You know, the book is is really sort of, um, it's kind of sharing from my heart, uh, both as an artist uh, over many years, uh, working as a musician in the film industry, in concert music, in the church, uh, writing sacred music, and and also just sort of my own journey in the church uh, as a Christian, paying a little bit more attention to liturgy, just sort of uh, growing in that awareness of just how hungry so many of us are, certainly I was uh, and have been often for a deeper uh, understanding of how our faith connects with uh, the world, with the world we live in, uh, with the world that we experience on a day-to-day basis through our senses, and especially with the the sort of the things in the world that uh, we find to be beautiful, uh, nature, food, um, music, art, uh, all of these sorts of things. How do we think about these things as Christians? And this is, of course, a really big uh, uh concept that I've had to grapple with as a, as an artist who's also a Christian, but it's something I think that uh, everybody in, on some level who calls themselves a Christian has to think about because we are all given five senses. Uh, and even if we don't paint pictures or write music or, uh, you know, sculpt sculptures, all of us are putting our senses to work Mm-hmm. regardless of whether we do it in a way that relates directly to our faith or not, or whether we know that it relates directly to our faith. We, we do make meals. We do go out in nature and enjoy it. We uh, read books. We play, we, we might, you know, uh, strum a guitar, play on the piano, like all of these aspects put our senses into work. And so this is, this is a journey. Uh, it's kind of the culmination of a journey in many senses uh, of me thinking through and exploring what is, what does it mean for us to think about faith in the context of our senses. And, um, and it's a large part of what's also led me to do doctoral research here in um, not Oxford, but St. Andrews, which is where I usually am in Scotland on mm-hmm. music and theology. 
And so I'm really excited to sort of bring all that together into this book. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, people talk about the, the sins of the flesh, but I'm pretty concerned about the sins of fleshlessness. You know I mean? This, this, the world we live in is so uh, desubstantialized, um, you know, so electronic and, and as if, in, as if the stuff of the world were information and data rather than matter. Yeah. I think it's a particular challenge we have right now because I, in some ways we've been on this, uh, train hurtling through uh, history, as it were, especially over the past couple of decades with the rise of information technology and the arrival mm-hmm. of social media. And I think in some sense, we were already only just starting to grapple with, with the implications of that in the last several years with mm-hmm. uh, you know, thinking about uh, is data private or is it public? What is data? How do we, you know, are our lives private? Are our lives uh, what we present them as online, you know, there's all of these big questions. And I think that COVID particularly and having to be inside and sort of cut off a little bit from the world has really, really, really pushed this to mm-hmm. the fore. And so yeah. we have to sort of ask ourselves now in a way we never have before, uh, what does it mean to to be in the world, to be embodied, to have bodies? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think this is probably on the on the cover of your book or something, but but the idea that that we we have this tendency to think of spirituality as something that happens, you know, inside us. Mm, mm. Um, <clears throat> and I think you know this is a podcast about writing, and you know we 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 think of writing as something that happens between our ears primarily. Um, yeah. But the truth is, both our spiritual life and our and a writing life. You know, it's yeah. it's a it's a connection to a, a wider world that's not inside our heads. That's you know? right, and it's it's so. Um, I mean, a, a a spirituality that doesn't connect us with with what's outside our yeah ourselves is not much of a spirituality. Absolutely, you're absolutely right about that, and um, I I think that um, I, I think this is key. I think this is sort of maybe a starting point in some ways for a theology of the senses. Which, which is to say that before we, we know anything, before we understand anything, our senses are already engaged from the minute we're born. And we are sensory creatures. We know through our senses. This is called mm-hmm. somatic knowledge, knowledge of our senses. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think, I think that is, that's where we begin with theology of senses. It's not to say, how can we think about theology and add the senses in? It's to right. say, no, theology begins with the senses in many, in many ways. Uh, and Christian theology, particularly because Christian theology begins with the person of Christ, not an idea, but a, mm-hmm. a person who lived in time and space and, and uh, whose actions of, uh, that we speak about in our testimony of the gospel were all very embodied actions, incarnation, the word becoming flesh, uh, crucifixion, uh, giving up his, uh, Christ, Christ giving up his body on the cross. Uh, resurrection, bodily raising of from the dead. These are all very much to do not just with the spiritual reality, but also with the physical reality. And of course, mm-hmm. um, we we just can't get away from the from the physical aspects of the gospel story of you know fig trees being cursed and feet walking on dirt roads and Jesus breaking the bread with in the upper room and then with the men after walking on the road of Emmaus. And there's these constant yeah. physical aspects. And so. I think, and that does relate in many senses to writing as well, because I think, um, you know, Christianity always is thinking about the relationship between word and flesh. 
um, we can't get away from it because the heart of our faith is a word made flesh. And, and I think in many senses, that's what writers do. Writers are never the, uh, the sort of beginning point. They're never saying something to start the conversation off. They're always entering mm-hmm. a conversation and responding to it. Oh, Even if the conversation yeah. is an unspoken conversation that reflects the world itself, as it were. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think writing is always a response and then an, an invitation for somebody else to respond. It's never really just in my head, as it were. Um, yeah. this is, this is one of those, um, this is one of those ideas, which it, it goes back several hundred years, but we just can't seem to, <laughs> no pun intended, but get it out of our heads, which is this <laughs> Cartesian idea that we're divided between bodies and minds that we're really just a mind. And we kind of have these bodies that, that are attached to it, but really what we are is just our brain, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's just not what the world tells us or what our faith tells us. Yeah. I'm always, when I teach writing, I'm always talking about, you know, in your writing, you are indeed conveying information, but you are more importantly conveying experience. And this is also true. This is not just when you're writing fiction. It's also when you're writing nonfiction. You know, you, 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 are, the, the, you are tapping into the bodily rhythms of, of your, your reader. I mean, you, the, as you've already touched on this, the, everything we know, we know through our senses, and then we, we have a, you know, another part of our brain that once the, once the information comes in through our senses, then it goes to work making judgments and having feelings and, and you know, making logical connections, that kind of stuff. And you know, one of the tricky things about writing is it lets you, it does, you do have a way of short-circuiting all that, right? You, you can go straight to the logic and the judgment and all that kind of stuff. It's just that it's not as a, the writing is not as effective when you short circuit the sensory. Right. That's right. It's, it's the strange thing that even though writing is taking something that we've experienced and then putting it into a very conceptual space, it only works if it reflects that experience. It it's, and I think yeah. that that in of itself, you're right. I think that is the, that is the, the tell of this, of this thing that really in the end of it, writing is an engagement with reality, not escape from it. Yeah. Well, Joel, you speak of becoming co-conspirators in the great work of manifesting beauty mm-hmm. in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. So I want to talk about that, that yeah. being co-conspirators and, and you're talking about being co-conspirators with, with God. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. This is one of those big, kind of the big ideas from the book. And um, we've already kind of touched on it a little bit, but um, you know, I said that before we know anything you were talking about, you were mentioning this as well, that we, we experience and then make sense of that experience. And the whole mm-hmm. of the world is that way. We are in the world, as it were, before we know anything, but we sort of experience it. And there's a givenness to creation. Yeah. And um, scripture talks very broadly about um, the way that creation is evidence to us of who God is. Uh, and and what he is about. And, um, you know, Romans one talks about God's invisible attributes, um, which sort of are understood through what he's made. And, um, one of my favorite passages that comes to mind, and I talk about this in chapter, uh, one, I believe it is, is, uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which is this, some people think it's, it's a hymn, possibly an early Christian hymn or some sort of adapted hymn. And yeah. it talks about it, kind of the, the the dual nature of Christ, both as the, the the firstborn of all creation, through whom everything came into being, and by whom everything is sustained. And then, secondarily, as um, 
as the firstborn from the dead. And so it's got these two sort of little um, uh, hinge words, the firstborn. He's firstborn of creation and the firstborn of the dead, mm-hmm. through whom everything in heaven and earth will be made right with God. And it, we note, of course, that it says, and earth. It's the sort of this holistic sense that that the God who created through, that Christ who created the world and through whom everything is sustained is intending to save that creation. To to uh, And there's this sort of continuity, as it were, this link between Christ the creator and Christ the redeemer. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we talked about this, that the, that the gospel is embodied. It's embodied salvation. It's uh, incarnation, word made flesh, Um and in a certain sense, it's the same kind of thing. Word made flesh and incarnation is heaven coming down to earth. We have the, mm-hmm. the cross and the resurrection, which are very embodied in the ascension, is the reverse of the incarnation. It's the inverse of the incarnation. It's, it is sanctified body. It is the first fruits of the dead, as Paul says, being pulled up into a heavenly reality. Uh, and, and so I think um, sort of what, what, what do we do about this? Um, I think it tells us that there is this, this affirmation in the gospel story, in, in being a Christian and following Christ. Um, we, we, along with Christ, recognize that the incarnation, the resurrection, all these aspects are a reaffirmation that what God said at the beginning of creation, that what he made is good, and that he intends to redeem it, that it is sacred, that we within it are sacred. Um, that, you know, as Revelation says, we look toward a new heaven's and a new earth. And so I think that when I talk about being co-conspirators in the work of, of manifesting beauty, I mean to say that uh, we can't share the gospel if we don't recognize the way that we are in the world and the world is part and parcel of how we share the gospel. Um, it's through creation that we apprehend Christ's, this is one of those great terms that theologians use, paschal mysteries, his acts of salvation. Uh, it's it's through creation that we do that through 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 embodied uh, works of Christ, and so to fail to behold the God who made the world and then redeemed that same world, to be, fail to behold His work in creation, His activity in creation, would be to ignore an entire facet of the way that He's revealed Himself. Uh, it's we we are not just uh, it's not a neutral thing, you know. Uh, yeah. Our our, our sort of participating in seeing beauty in the world around us is a central part of our gospel witness, what we're called to do and what we're called to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you may even be understating your case when you say that it's an, you know, it's an important aspect of, of what, of how he reveals himself. I mean, it's it, our, well, you're the one making the case. I don't know why, but, but, but the, but you know, it's, it's, it's not just, you know, one way is that he reveals himself is through, you know, nature and one way is through, I mean, it's, it's, it's all, it's right. all one thing, right? Absolutely. And Absolutely. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's completely connected. The God who reveals himself in creation, uh, seeking to redeem that creation reveals himself, um, not just through creation, but in, in creation, becoming flesh yeah. as part of that creation. And, and, and sanctifying that creation by letting himself be part of its molecules and atoms and the mm. fabric and stuff of our world. That's a, we should never let that become a normal thing to us. It's, it's, yeah. it's radical and it's and yeah. it is in of itself beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm thinking about that, uh, the, uh, seven stanzas at Easter, the Updike poem. Um, and, and he says, you know, uh, let us not mock God with metaphor. 
you know, that the, the resurrection, if, if, if his flesh didn't knit back together and, and stand again, yeah. Then, yeah. then this is, then the idea of, of Christianity is a joke. Yes. Um, that, that, that we're not talking about, you know, resurrection as a, as a symbol of something. We're talking about literally standing again on the earth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and so, you know, I, 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 um, you talk about molecules and I mean, yeah, I, I think it's so important that we, we, we remember we're talking about molecules. Yeah. The world has ascended into the world as, uh, summed up in the, in the person of Christ, um, who was embodied, who was the first fruits from the dead, whose, whose body walked through walls, not because it was less physical than the world, but because it was more physical mm. because we comparatively are, are not what he, what we will someday be when we are like him, when you know, he's yeah. the first fruits, that's what we're destined for. And that, that reality, that person uh, has sanct has sanctified the world again through his presence in it and calls us to recognize the, the beauty of the world as a potential a uh, touch point of God's presence for those who don't know him. You know, uh, it's both yeah. our reality to live out and our testimony to express. Yeah. You, um, uh, a recurring theme in, in your book is that we, um, we have to experience these things in order to say these things, right? You have to learn to hear the song before you can sing the song. Yeah. Um, another way you put it is um, uh, when we engage with Jesus' beauty in the world and allow it to shape us, we bear the beauty of that transfigured life in us, shining like a beacon in the dark world. Yeah. And again, you're you're talking about the spiritual life. I think it's also so relevant to um, to the writing life, right? Mm -hmm. That that we we can only give what we have received. Yeah. Um, what what we take in. Um, and, um, and we can, you know, we, we bear witness, we, we give an account of what we've seen. Yeah. And I think all that is so, so important and, and relevant. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, we, 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 especially in the 20th century, I think we've come to an understanding of what it means to sort of share our faith and bear witness to Christianity in a very ideas oriented way. Well, the most important thing about us is what we believe, um, <laughs> you know, the one that we we're sort of in a, in a certain sense, the sinner's prayer is something we assent to uh, it's mm -hmm. once we understand what's happening and then, and it, it, it all happens in a moment rather than something that's lived out because the, the key focus is put on concepts on the mind on what's we sort of have mm -hmm. understood. But, and, and, you know, that's not at all to disparage that process because that's brought many, many people to Christ and, and given them a rich and, and wonderful faith. But um, I think that, Again, ultimately, Christian faith is about encountering Christ, and so what? How do we think about this as as writers who are trying to bring something into being? Well, in a certain sense, what we pray is that our words will become flesh for somebody else. Mm -hmm. That um, you know, that instead of instead of us presenting the right ideas and crafting the right concepts and then kind of packaging them up and then presenting them, which is all in my head. You know, it's just sort of mm -hmm. like, I think the right idea, I put it onto the page and then I give it and it's perfectly received. And then on we go. It's, it's more like I have had something incarnated for me in the world that I encountered and it changed me. And then as a Christian writer, my job is to just to describe that uh, and to let 
God do the work of incarnation uh, through me. Not, yeah. not because I'm something special or because I, ha- I have capacities, because God uses earthen vessels to, to do his work. And, and so I think, um, you know, you see this people like Madeline Lingle and Anne Lamont talked about this in their work about writing and, and engaging with, with ideas like this through writing to the, the, the best one can be is to, is to make oneself available to be a vessel. And I think to do that, the best way to do that is to be well engaged oneself in the world. Uh, I, I write this book partly because I hope that by sharing my own experience of of learning the the sort of the means of my senses and you know whether that be through you know, I've, especially this year it's funny um, I'm not I love cooking but uh, I did not understand what it meant to cook until this year when I could not go get fast food or anything else and between uh-huh. Joy my sister and I we both live in Scotland in the same flat together. Uh, we, we had to cook three meals a day. And, uh, yeah. and I really, I got, I, I, I got sort of the idea of cooking under my fingernails as it were, but even, even more than that, I got sort of an even deeper realization of just how central and good feasting is to human experience and what that mm-hmm. means to, uh, all of reality, because of course, yeah. uh, the, you know, the, the whole Christian story is about feasting. It begins in a garden full of plenteous uh, fruits. It ends with a wedding feast of the lamb. And in the very middle, of course, is the communion supper uh, in the middle of history, right at the very center is this amazing meal of God giving himself for us. And so uh, I think it's those sorts of things. It's it's letting our, our um, senses reveal something truthful about what we have have understood about God, uh, maybe actually helping us to understand something that we, that yeah. we know. Uh, knowledge is, is kind of a neutral thing. Information is neutral. Uh, you know, it, it's just a computer receives data and responds to it. It doesn't make moral judgments. Computers just algorithmically calculate things. Humans yeah. don't algorithmically calculate things. Humans don't just receive and output and input data humans make sense of that data. We are, this is our sort of perhaps our fundamental nature is uh, to, to give meaning to what we receive. And, um, and so I think there's something really key in that, that our senses help us to give meaning to, to the information that we receive and then mm-hmm. to enact it back into the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it's, you, you quote, um, uh, C.S. Lewis, that the uh, reason is the organ of what information and imagination is the organ of meaning. That's right. I say that right? The organ of truth. And then the reason is the organ of truth. Yeah. Yeah. Truth is sort of, I think, you know, I don't want to speak too closely for Lewis. Of course, he speaks for himself and, and is such a wonderful writer on this topic. But um, just to say that truth is sort of the in uh, the immutable thing, which we come to run up against, yeah. uh, you know, so for instance, the truth would be, um, Jesus Christ is, is the son of the living God or, you know, uh, God is father, son, and Holy spirit. That's information. Uh, it's good information, but the way that I know that it's good information is by having a context, which gives meaning to those things. It gives meaning to those words, which gives meaning mm-hmm. to those concepts and what they mean. Uh, in my, the consequences they have in my life. And, and yeah. so our work 
uh, as Christians, both for our own faith walks and as we go out to the world and live amongst each other and others and our neighbors, is to, is to do more than just process data. Yeah. It's, it's to make meaning of the world. Yeah. You know, I, you, it, the, the word, I think we, we think of truth as um, somehow being about propositions, you know, and, and again, acti- which I then um, agree to or disagree with in my head. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, I've started using the word reality more often than I use. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with the word truth, but, but, but reality is uh, I like that word just because reality, I don't have to, I don't think a reality is something that I have to acknowledge in my head one way or another. It, it is what it is. Right. I mean, and, and etymologically it means thinginess like that, that re in reality is the Latin word for thing. Yeah. yeah Which, again, yeah. I, I make sense of things first with my senses mm-hmm. rather than my brain. I, I, again, once those, yeah sensory images come into my brain, then I start doing things with, with them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, reality, I, 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 you know, I'm kind of getting that from Aquinas. You know, Aquinas talks about reality. He talks about truth and reality, but, but, um, but um, I, I just find it really helpful to think, you know, a reminder that reality is that which continues to be true, whether I believe in it or not. (laughs) Yeah. And I think this is one of those ways in which we're just, I think, just starting to grapple with this in Christianity with some of the difficulties and harms of modernism, sort of the, um, the, uh, how would you say this sort of immutability of, of sort of structures of what we believe. I think in, in some sense, um, the 20th century, pushed Christianity and, and any uh, formal construct of belief to its limit, you know, with, with war, with evil, with destruction, with death. And I think that we're, what we're starting to recognize is that what, what you're talking about, which is that there is this sense in which we are grappling with something we don't have a full uh, capacity to understand or to define. Um, and yet, we are grappling with it. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have a full, you know, this, this is something, this is an old tradition in Christianity. It's the apophatic tradition, the via negativa and the via negativa. And I talk about this actually in in my introduction Mm -hmm. to the book, the via negativa was a recognition that sometimes it's, it's easy. It's, it's more, uh, it's holier to say what, to, to admit what we can't say about God than to admit, to, to try to say what we can say about God. Yeah. Because as soon as we try to say too many positive things about God, we start to put him into a box that, that fits perfectly of our own accord and mm-hmm. uh, sort of is defined the way we want him. And um, so, so some of these early Christian philosophers and theologians, um, Pseudo Dionysius, the, the Areopagite, uh, I think in the sixth century and uh, many others after him, he was kind of a key figure there. Uh, Augustine certainly talked about um, apophatic theology would, would say uh, God is uncontainable. Um, mm-hmm. God is both um, God cannot be said to be being or not, not being He is beyond being, you know, and of course this has created a lot of our philosophical conversations in the 20th century. But the point being, I think that our senses are a great way to, to sort of recognize that tension between what we want to say is true and the limitation of, 
of our capacity to control what it, that reality, that ultimate objective, immutable reality of who Christ is. And, and are you we, saying because we can't even pretend that our senses are infinite, whereas we can pretend that our? Well, I think what I'd say is that God is infinite, mm-hmm. which means that we will never be able to fully grasp or contain Him in our intellect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are invited to participate in Him mysteriously. Uh, we're invited to to uh, to be uh, redeemed and to participate in his life. This is our ultimate destiny, um, those who are redeemed in Christ. And uh, how, how do we begin to define intellectually, rationally, what it means to participate in something infinite? I don't think we can. Mm-hmm. We can, mm-hmm. however, uh, allow ourselves to let go of some of that capacity to try to control by describing, and instead, through our senses, through through um, through bringing a meal to bear, there is something that is communicated to us. Again, somatically, it's this this idea yeah, of yeah, somatic yeah. knowledge, it's sensory knowledge, yeah. that we understand what it's like to participate. Uh, Bonaventure, who is a saint, uh, a medieval saint, uh, called the Seraphic Doctor, Doctor of the Church. Um, <laughs> He talked about how when you when you comprehend something, when you think about it intellectually, you have to hold it at a distance. Hmm. Um, you have to sort of observe it and describe it. Um, if you want to participate in that thing, if you want to touch it and and make it tangible to yourself, um, you 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 sort of move past a descriptive capacity and into a participatory capacity. Huh. Yeah, that's and, good. And that's something that our senses allow us to do. This is why perhaps we have music in worship, because there is something that even when we use words to describe something about God or to worship him, music carries our limited capacity beyond what we can actually say into yeah. a deeper participation of worship in, uh, of God um, and, and, a, and a, an awareness of his life working through us in his Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so I think yeah. this is part of where our senses come into play is they work in tandem with our intellect. Uh, our intellect takes us to a certain extent, and our our senses then help us to carry forward. Mm. Uh, I think it was Aquinas, certainly one of the people who dealt with this, but um, also Gregory of Nyssa, a little bit in Augustine. Uh, church uh, fathers and medieval theologians and many other people who believed that we had to have our senses because our senses are the locus of our desire. Our senses yeah. are... Uh, you know, our, our intellect is not something which moves in any which direction. Again, it's kind of, there's a neutrality to our intellect, but our senses, we need our bodies to help us move toward God um, because our senses are the locus of where our desire is. And so even though as sinful beings, our desires are very flawed, um, God works through our flawed desires, not by destroying them, but by reorienting them, reorienting them to, to himself. Um, and our desires are best understood through our senses, because our senses are our embodied experience of the world. Yeah, sounds like th- this sounds relevant to to um, something you say in your book that that you talk about the importance of transforming idols into icons. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, it, which is probably uh, probably safe to say um, this is a matter of of uh, reordering our lives, right? Mm-hmm. The idol is a is a disordered. Yeah. An object of disordered love. Yeah. Um, but actually, uh, you tell me what, what you mean. No, you're, no, you're absolutely, you're, I mean, you're saying it exactly right. I think that's right. I mean, this is Augustine in a nutshell, in many senses, is that Augustine is, you know, his famous quote is, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in me. And our hearts look every which way for 
um, things which will satisfy because we're made for satisfaction. Mm-hmm. God gave a garden and and told the people he told Adam and Eve at the beginning of time be fruitful and multiply. He gave them work and and creation that was fulfilling to them. Um, we are made we are creatures made for fulfillment. So the problem is not having desires or longing for fulfillment. The, the problem is that, as Lewis says in, in The Weight of Glory, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, the problem is that our desires are too weak, is that yeah. we, they fall short of God's profound goodness of what, of, of what would actually satisfy those desires in their fullest sense. Um, they fall short by looking for things which uh, are lesser pleasures. It's not that the mm-hmm. desire in itself is, is necessarily corrupted um, beyond any hope uh, beyond the point of being reformed or redeemed. Basically every desire is a, a longing for something good, which has been corrupted. And so faith uh, in, in Christian faith is not about destroying the things which, which um, were points of uh, were things that led us into sin prior to salvation, or even things that lead into sin after salvation. It's allowing God to change them in us to change our desires, not to, not to end our desires. This can be hard for us because it would be easier uh, if we could just pray, God, take away my desire for such and such or for such and such. That's not what God does with our desires. God takes our desires and we say, God, this is a desire which has been oriented to the wrong thing. It's, it's fallen short of your glory. Help me know how to reorient this desire to you. And I think, um, Aquinas actually believed that the intellect needed the senses to reform itself um, because mm-hmm. it was led out of sync. It was led out of uh, its, its proper way by the senses and it can only be led back into its proper way through the senses. Interesting. That's good. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, but, but you, uh, we got off a little bit off track. We need to talk about the difference between idols and icons. Right. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So when we think about this, uh, I, I think, I use desire as a way to think about idols and icons because uh, I think that those things which we put our desires towards, which are not in God, which fall short of God, that is idolatry. Idolatry is a um, is a is a false form of what is true in God, and um, so a lot of the time, what our temptation is is just to destroy the idol, but um, but. But God doesn't, you know, we, it's, it says in, in Paul, Paul says that we are, we are dead in our trespasses to sin, but, but God works through us to, to reform and revive us. And, and I think that, uh, you know, it says we have these treasures in earthen vessels and jars of clay. I mentioned that earlier. Um, God works through us who are imperfect beings. He doesn't throw us away. He does not discard mm-hmm. us. We, uh, you know, in our, in our fallen state, uh, are tempted by idols. And we even become idols unto ourselves. God doesn't destroy us. He reforms us. He works through us. He, in our imperfection, his grace is perfected. And I think this is what we're called to do as well, is we're called to look into the world and see where things have become broken and not turn people away from them, but redeem those spaces. Not, not um, you know, God, again, God did not evacuate us from the world. He entered into our world and worked in it to redeem it, to draw it into himself. And so we're called to do the same thing, to enter into the darkness and say, let there be light, as Andrew Peterson says in his wonderful song. Um, this, is, this, is, this is our calling as, as Christians, is to transform 
idols, things which mislead and draw people away, into icons, things which don't refract the light away, but ref- but point the light um, so that we see toward God, that we see through something toward God, so that the thing doesn't become an end in itself, but allows us to look through it. That's what an icon is. Um, an icon is is a is a uh, you know traditionally a painting um, of of a sort that um, depicts a holy figure and uh, the sort of theological concept of an icon of course is that by by um, observing the icon and contemplating it one does not worship the icon but one receives a heavenly light which is re- is reflected through it and and as um, as the uh, as one of the great councils of the church actually affirmed worships that which is reflected through it not the thing in itself but that which it points towards mm-hmm. and um that's what we want to do we want to open up we want to make the world porous again so that the light of god shines through everything and draws people to him yeah that's great all right well we are running out of time so i need to, to finish up with the question i always finish up with and that is who are the writers who make you want to write joel that's a great question well I'll give you a few people that have, I mean, there's, there's certainly, I think, uh, people that, that many of your listeners would agree are wonderful writers that they've heard numerous times before, Lewis and Tolkien and Lingle and others uh, just adore and have so deeply shaped me. But I'd say more recently, uh, this year especially, as I've been under lockdown, there have been some key books that I've read that I've really enjoyed um, right. on a fiction level. Okay. I really, really enjoyed Susanna Clarke's Piranesi. Um, okay. Susanna Clark, the way she writes makes me want to be a writer, makes me want to be a better writer. There's, there's, there's a um, precision to her prose. Uh, No word is wasted. It takes her a while to write. I think it's Mm -hmm. about 16 years between her last book and this most current one. It's not a long novel, but every single word is used. uh, And sometimes you won't even recognize that it's been used cleverly until several sentences later. And then you'll suddenly realize, ah, there's been this recapitulation of this, this sort of verbal theme. And it's just amazing. Uh-huh. Um, well, I've heard that's great. I haven't, I've have not read that book. I need oh, to. Fabulous. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, you know, and she, she herself fully admits that she's dealing um, with themes that you would find in, in places like Lewis. She's a big fan of Lewis's. Huh. Um, and um, in some sense, I think is carrying his, his legacy forward. Uh, one of the mm. authors who I think is carrying his legacy forward um, on a nonfiction level. You know, I've I've recommended this book in in previous years, various places as well. But um, I'm just now starting to read his book, The Eucharist. Alexander Schmemann. He's um mm-hmm. he's a Russian Orthodox priest, uh, 20th century Russian Orthodox priest. Wonderful, wonderful writer. I just love the way that he is sharing um, when in any of his writing, he he's talking about you know uh, theology, big concepts about um, the sacraments and about liturgy and about the Eucharist, all these sorts of things. But he does it in a way that's, it's, it's almost devotional. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's always with this re- realization that our words are always in some sense when we're talking about God, they ought to be a worship of God as well. Um, we should never talk about anything to do with God in a clinical way. We should always have a yeah. sense in which when we speak of God, we speak of him with reverence and with honor and with worship. And his books read like that, even though I gain enormous knowledge um, through them about theology. Um, and so I've been reading his book, The Eucharist, but the key book that I absolutely love is For the Life of the World, which is yeah. sort of an over, overview of liturgy and sacrament. Yeah, um, great book. Similar to him in that regard is a Jewish writer, uh, uh, Abraham Heschel, uh, who has that same kind of almost mystical 
mystical sensibility. So I highly, highly recommend Heschel. Heschel talks about sort of time as a as a sacred sacred aspect um, in his book, mm-hmm. The Sabbath. And it's a book I also highly recommend. And then I'll just end with a book I, re- I read recently and absolutely adored. Um, Martin Schlesky makes me want to be uh, a writer. He makes me want to write better. Uh, he makes me want to write more reflectively and more thoughtfully. He is a, um, he's one of the finest violin makers in the world uh, in Germany. And he wrote a book recently called The Sound of Life's Unspeakable Beauty. Uh, and this book is just a, his reflection on sort of the um, uh, analogies for spiritual life from the process of creating a violin. And yeah. he shares a lot from his own life. Uh, it's a translated book. It was originally written in German, beautifully translated, but his, his reflections are just so um, full of life. And I think in that sense, more than making me want to be a better writer, he makes me want to be a more attentive writer. Mm-hmm. He makes me want to be a writer who's more, imbo- more embedded in my world and responding to it more fully. Yeah, so those are my recent reads that have made me want to be a better writer. Those are great. I, I want to I wanna read all those. <laughs> well, Joel Clarkson, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. It's been such a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.